0: Welcome back to the data doesn't equal outcomes podcast, where your host Tristan Keelan and his guests explore everything about data from culture to metrics to telling quality improvement stories for the human side of analytics. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the data doesn't equal outcomes podcast. Really excited to Share this conversation today about New York State's 1115 waiver with an angle towards the data portion of what the state's going to be doing and um, what providers are going to be doing on behalf of the state. Just a quick disclaimer for our listeners. This is being recorded on September 1st, 2023. Any information shared today is done so with the knowledge of the guests and the hosts on this date in time. And we mentioned that because the 1115 Waiver Conversation in New York State is an ever-changing ever, an ever changing item right now. So let's get into my guests. I'm very happy to introduce Scott Emery. Scott's a partner for strategy and transformation with MS Hall and Associates. Scott, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, it's proud to be here.
0: My other guest is Nikki Kaminsky, Executive Director for the Western New York Integrated Care Collaborative. Nikki, really great to have you as well.
2: Hi, Stan. Hi, Scott. Great to be here.
0: Okay, so before we jump in, let's—I want to give my guests an opportunity to introduce themselves and a little bit about what they do, so that we have an idea of the lens and experience that they're coming to this conversation with. Scott, why don't you lead us off?
1: Sure. Thanks. So yeah, Scott Emery from MSL and Associates, partner of the Strategy and Transformation Team. Been here almost ten years now, which is hard to believe. And so my team—we work across public and social sectors seeking the advancement of systemic equity and community resilience. So lots of big, fun, fancy words. Essentially, we work with all sorts of different types of organizations, government, education, community-based organizations, healthcare, philanthropy, um, and do what we call strategic design and think about this from the angle of a lot of human centered design principles and processes and thinking about what is it that organizations, multi-stakeholder collaborations, Specific like projects. What is it that they're actually trying to accomplish and how can we keep at the center of it as well as what their people need? How can they serve their people better? And we were heavily involved as it relates to this conversation, heavily involved in the world of DISRIP, the Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment Program. That was one of the initiatives underneath New York State's Medicaid or within New York State's Medicaid redesign initiatives. And so we did everything from strategic design, to operations, to arranging chairs for meetings, to everything else that you could possibly think of. And so because we were so heavily involved in that world for the entirety of that five-year waiver, we've seen a lot. And because we've seen a lot, it's given us a lot of interesting perspectives on what was uh, back in 2019, District 2.0, and then fast forward to August of 2021, when this concept paper came out for what we're going to talk about today. We've probably spoken in front of thousands of people at this point about what this thing is, how it might operate, then to your point, Tristan, it's ever evolving nature, what is up and what it could be next and all of that. We worked with lots of fun organizations, doing a lot of fun work in food, transportation, housing, all that stuff, which all kind of coalesces in this 1115 waiver opportunity. So. Excited to be here. I'll talk more about some of that stuff as we go.
0: Scott's been on the road show. A lot of our listeners might recognize him from various conference centers and webinars over the (laughs) last year. Nikki at the Western York Integrated Care Collaborative, why don't you introduce us to your organization and your work?
2: Sure. And I've been one of those recipients of of a few of Scott's presentations, which is always, I learn something new every time. At Western New York Integrated Care Collaborative, we are a community care hub for a network of over 50, I think we're at 55 now, community-based organizations. Our agencies and our network are all different shapes and sizes. They're all community-based organizations, either nonprofit or the government departments, but they're delivering social care programs on the ground, in the homes, Uh, folks in up to 15 counties in the western region of New York. We started, really got incorporated in 2016. So we've been doing this for about five years, almost six years. And we have contracts with health plans, really act as that centralized for the network to take off that administrative burden from the community-based organizations so they can focus on what they do best, which is delivering those social care health related social need programs
0: right so why don't we why don't we stick with you Nikki for a minute and and you, there's a term that we're going to use a lot here and it's relatively new we used to use the term social determinants of health for a while and now we're shifting to this concept of social care can you tell us like what is social care in, yeah. in general but also specifically what is it folks are doing when they're delivering social care
2: Yeah, and another term that you'll hear, it's mentioned a lot through this waiver, is health-related social needs and the Mm -hmm. interventions around those. And when we're talking about those, all three of those terms, we're talking about addressing the needs of folks at their home level, right? So things like do they have adequate housing or are their housing needs appropriate? Do they need a ramp? Do they have a leaking roof? Is there, are they at risk of losing their housing? Do they have access to food? They have any of these type of needs at their home level, then they're very less likely to get clinical care and take care of themselves on their health side. Addressing what people need when they're home and then integrating that with clinical care is what our mission is really all about.
0: Great. Thank you for that. So Scott, I want to pivot back over to you now that we're up to speed on this concept of social care delivery. What is the, we're calling it the 1115 waiver, but what is it? What's happening? What's going on in the system? And then tell us, how's that different from other Medicaid waivers in the past, like Disrupt?
1: Yeah, Yeah, good question. (laughs) So the the existing 1115 waiver, NIGER, the New York Health Equity Reform, is essentially the next iteration, taking lessons learned from COVID and thinking about how can the state Medicaid program weave together, integrate, as Nikki was saying, social care with clinical care. Now, all the research shows 80 to 90% of an individual and a community's health is wrapped up in these social care, health-related social needs issues if that's true how do we address those in much more effective ways that also allows for clinical care to also take place at the right time in the right setting those kinds of issues if we can address both of those simultaneously in sustainable ways so there's a big portion of this next version thinking about how does social care get sustained through things like value-based payment and fee schedules and all that that communities individuals can hopefully have much, much better lives because of these different things. So essentially, if we look at the world of DISRIP, again, the delivery System performance Reform and Sensitive Payment Program, that was a five-year waiver, was roughly $8 billion. And it was, for the most part, aimed at the clinical settings. There were these things called performing provider systems that were created, myself and my, some of my colleagues here helped form one of those things. So we were some of the people essentially walked in the room for six months trying to make heads or tails of what all of us meant Then writing applications and thinking about speed and scale numbers and all these things. And in doing so, all those PPSs, there were 25 of them across the entire state. They all had to choose from a portfolio of 42 projects. They had to choose 11. And out of those 11, all of them, for the most part, were clinical in nature of some kind. And so a lot of what happened in the world of disrope was focused in a lot of good ways and good intentions on reforming how the clinical side of the services work. And so there was lots of things aiming at preventing potential admissions, ER visits, things that were preventable in and of themselves, right? And a lot of good happened, and a lot of things happened that were, again, primarily clinical. COVID hit. A lot of the things that have been true for decades and decades around inequities, the structures, the things that perpetuate said inequities weren't new or they shouldn't have been new to a lot of folks, but were essentially highlighted and emphasized in lots of different ways. So the state is now saying with this new initiative, let's actually address that and how can we weave these things together so it's not just clinical and it's not just social, but how do we put a lot of the emphasis on the social side because that just hasn't happened yet. So, there are other, a lot of other differences in the world of what Disrupt was and what this waiver is trying to get at. There will not be performing provider systems. There were things, so we can talk more about this, called heroes, health regional organizations, social care networks, you know, you know other points of emphasis that are really quite different. The way funds might be flowing, very different than what it was in the world of Disrupt. But a lot of it is, again, really focused on, as Nikki was saying. How do we undergird and support social terror systems and frameworks and interventions for the sake of really getting at a lot of issues that we just haven't addressed as a state?
0: Yes. So <laughs> you mentioned this idea of the hero, right? And it seems like this part of the conversation has evolved a little bit, but structurally we're talking about some sort of new entity creations. Nikki, from your understanding of where we're headed, how do you see what have been dubbed so far as social determinant of health networks in, in your eyes? What's that infrastructure going to look like for delivery?
2: Yes, I think the latest that we're hearing is they've changed that name to now social care network, mm-hmm. and it really does align a lot with what Western new York Integrated Care Collaborative has already built the infrastructure, not at the scale at what this new waiver will be really asking for, but to have a centralized entity to contract with the MCOs, the managed care organizations, to receive the screenings from whoever does them, whether it's the health plan, the provider, or the community-based organization, to determine the eligibility of that member, reach out to that member, find out what type of services they really need, and then link them to the CBOs. The social care network will also be responsible for building the capacity of the community based organizations that are interested in participating. So what does that look like? It could be trainings. It could be funding for resources. It's really going to be spelled out. We don't know all the, what this infrastructure funding can be used for yet, but that's going to be for the social care network to really build that capacity of the CBOs to really provide these interventions on a on and they're breaking it up into regions is our understanding and so on a regional level, having been all the counties in all the areas of the regions so really making sure you're getting to the population that needs the services the most.
0: So Scott, you talked about the difference between where we're headed and disrip, with Disrupt ending up primarily clinical funding focused towards the clinical. We know in this country that healthcare is not cheap, but we also know that housing's not cheap, food's not cheap, nothing's cheap. What kind of an undertaking are we talking about here, and what type of fundamental redesign of of healthcare funds are we talking about?
1: Sure. So the state back in August of 2021, when it put forward the amendment for this, and it's stayed with the same number, has requested that this be a $13.52 billion undertaking. So much higher than it was in the world of disrupt. No, and that that $13.52 per kind of like the caveat at the beginning of this, is very much up in the air. Could be a thing, could be changed, could be lowered. If you look at other states who have done comparable endeavors around social care delivery and integration with clinical care, 13.52 would be a very high number, especially with from what seems to be the timeline. They initially asked for was five years. The state is working under like this umbrella 1115 waiver itself. That's why this is an, an amendment to it. That ends in March, end of March, 2027. So to backtrack two years ago, August 24th, 2021, when the first document came out, we're two years after that initial release. And so now we're looking at a potential three, three and a half year timeline, something along those lines, that March 27 date will probably get pushed out, but the state and the feds haven't said that they're going to do that just yet. Hmm. All that's to say, The timeline, that chunk of change is very much up in the air and we'll see where it lands either way. $13.52 billion will be really just scratching the surface of a lot of these different things. Because this is a relatively unprecedented effort in the sense of there haven't been more robust payment structures around social care delivery, because there haven't been larger efforts, and as Nikki said, capacity building a lot of those different things around the social care side of this work. We'll see what $13.52 billion actually gets us to. I think I know that we have done work in the world of to your point of housing, we've done work in the world of food. We developed a housing trust fund for a city here in New York and looking at the assessments that we did analysis for one city, it was, we're thinking about the existing housing stock, what would be needed to have everybody house all of those kinds of questions that alone for one locale was millions and pushing into billions. And so you Mm -hmm. think about that across the entirety of the state and it asks a lot of, I think, very important questions, especially when a lot of our urban centers have outdated housing, unsafe housing, lead issues. There are just so many different pieces of this that what we've been saying since the concept paper came out has been, we need to experiment our way into this future that is horribly complex and in complexity. You can't just have expectations that A plus B will always equal C, but that we need to understand how do we push ourselves forward in a world that doesn't exist yet. And so with that, a lot of the work that we've been doing is thinking about, all right, how do we actually look at this and how do we work from the needs of the people that we're actually trying to serve and leverage this program of all maybe $13.52 billion towards the ends that we know our community. Yeah. Housing is expensive. Food's expensive. All the things are expensive. How is this going to work? We're going to have to figure out how to collaborate with
0: Right. All that makes sense. And my listeners have come to know that we do talk about the data, mm-hmm. even though we talk about the things around the data. But at the statewide level, Okay, you've got funding coming, we don't know how much, you've got networks being set up, you've got funding for services that have been historically not funded through the healthcare system. And to your point, Scott, a lot of change and a lot of unknown. And now we're talking about five years becoming maybe three and a half years. And we also know in healthcare that the data can be slow and it can lag You've got a long process of claim submission to denial processes to approvals. A lot of the data we look at has to go through a six to nine month ringer before it comes out usable on the other side. Okay, so I set that stage to ask the question, a lot of testing may be going on at the delivery level, but at the end of this, what is the state and or the feds? What are they going to be looking at from a metric standpoint, even if it's just a theoretical answer at this point? How are they going to know this works? And how are they going to know, uh, how are they going to think through the ROIs? What are the key indicators that they're going to be saying, all right, we put $13.5 billion and we got this to show for it. What's the this that they're thinking they're or hoping to see? Would you like me
1: to try and say something? Yeah. I'll okay. put
0: it up to either of you.
1: So I think you know, the most recent, as far as I, as far as I, the most recent publicly available information around some of this came, and forgive me for forgetting the date. Basically, I think it was in June or July, there was the United Hospital Fund Medicaid conference that took place uh, where the state Medicaid director, Mary spoke about and gained an update, a public update on. 1115 waiver itself. And so if we have a, if we have a shortened timeline, one of the things that I think as far as what could a metric of success look like with this, he really emphasized the screening process. And I know Mickey said it mm-hmm. a second ago, there were, there were data points that he gave about what does it look like across the state to understand screening processes for health-related social needs. And so it sounds like one main thing that they will be looking at is the level of screening taking place across the state for the sake of who might be eligible to receive social care needs interventions. And so it sounds like one of the things that we're looking at is how do we ramp up and get everybody, in this case, every Medicaid member screened to know where are they actually falling short? Where are the things that need to take place? Where are the interventions that are a part of all of and so I think that's going to be a major. I'll stop there. Nikki's thoughts on that were things you'd like to add as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think we heard the same thing. Screening, especially in the first year is going to be the biggest priority. They have released what tool they want everyone in the state to be using the CMS, Accountable Health Communities, health-related social needs screening tool, luckily that has but so that's going to be a challenge in itself right so right now some providers maybe use a different tool or they don't have that tool embedded in their system so when they're meeting with a with their patient we're going to have to figure out how to embed that tool so they can have an easy use of it and then once we have everybody able to use it in an easy manner Um, and that includes community-based organizations. Then we have to link them all up through the health-related, or I'm sorry, the regional health information exchanges so the state can collect that data. So that integration is gonna need to happen. They're gonna have to build the pipes, as they say, to link the data, which on the good side of the provider side, a lot of those pipes have already been built. It's embedding the tool, right? On the CBO side, It's probably going to have to go through the social care network to get that screening data up to the regional health information exchange and then back down to the social care network so they can start checking for eligibility and getting the people to the interventions. And I think that's going to be the second metric that Mm -hmm. how many people that screened positive actually received interventions. So it's going to be, yeah. A whirlwind, of three years.
1: Yeah, and I think to that point, on like the other end of it, the patients receiving said services, there is the state in the concept paper referred to North Carolina and its efforts around these kinds of things, about social care delivery and things of that nature. And so there is in the that's available out there. I'm looking at it right now. There is the North Carolina Healthy Opportunities Pilot Program fee schedule. And so that gives us some, perhaps, allusions to what the state might be looking at as an example or at least a precedent around some of these kinds of things. And for instance, in the world of housing, if there is a screening process, there are referrals being made. Some of the actual services might be like housing navigation, inspection for housing safety and quality, housing move-in support, on the food side, food and nutrition access. Case management services, diabetes prevention programs, fruit, and vegetable prescriptions, things like that. And there are other examples that I think the state probably be looking at to at least mimic or learn from and begin to see, okay, how has this actually connected those dots? I think the interesting thing with this too, on the referral side and the service side, is that there are lots and lots of organizations that do lots and lots of things in the mobile housing, the mobile food In those different domains that may or may not have anything to do with Medicaid or may not have anything to do with anything that resembles 1150, like all of those kinds of questions. And yet I know because I've had these conversations, they're looking at the people that they serve, recognizing they might not ever call them health-related social needs, but recognizing, hey, there's something here that we want to keep our tenants housed. We need to provide some kind of services. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting outliers, I guess we'll say, to what this could look like and what mm-hmm. it's being considered now. Because one of the premises that I think we have to be off of is it's all connected, whether we recognize right. it or not. And if right. it's all connected, there are going to be a lot of things to learn from and think about. And there are probably lots and lots of groups that I can, we can probably talk about this another time who are already doing a lot of this work. It's just never called health-related social needs, where they never bill Medicare, or those kinds of okay. things. And so I think a we... lot of this is going to be interesting to see from the referral side, the service side. I think those will be some of the main data points. Oh. And then I think connecting it back to the clinical side. How does getting first pers- a person navigation for housing services connect to preventable ER visits? Is that going to be a thing? It, it very right. well could be. I think that that's a lot of like it where it's going to be going if yeah. that makes sense
2: of mean cells yeah i was just gonna say some of the other challenges if they're already working with someone the screening asks two questions about food mm-hmm. and maybe getting food or attending congregate dining or some other maybe they already see a dietitian how are we going to make sure that we're getting them the services they need but not taking away from the services they're already receiving and du- duplicating we won't we don't want them to have to do 50 screens in a year or more than the minimum needed so all of that and I think data is the place to help us see an entire whole person record so that you can see if they've had a screen or not you can see what interventions they've they're already receiving and really allow us to really coordinate that care both
0: with the clinical and the social. Yeah, with the, you know, so we talked about the first two pretty clearly, right, like, uh, number of screenings that are happening, right, for social care needs, which is going to funnel down to <clears throat> how many of those screening positive for needs are getting services to meet those needs, right, but then tying it back to clinical is serving those needs, actually improving the clinical outcome. Otherwise, Medicaid runs the risk of being just a new funding source, like you mentioned for existing services rather than additional. And what if we house everybody, but it doesn't can't tie it back to the clinical is that are they going to see that as positive or not positive from their intention? I don't know if yeah. you have th- thoughts on that. But the uh-huh. data, the data could go, hey, this was really worthwhile, but maybe not even necessarily the way we expected it to.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's a great question. Uh, I remember back in like the disrupt days, there were lots of questions about if each PS had to choose 11 projects that ranged from creating an integrated delivery system down to the patient activation measure surveys, PAM surveys, and then the nerdy brain in me can still remember all the numbers and things of uh, the 2DI, all those things. But within that, There were tons of questions about, are these 11 projects actually going to move the metrics that the state is going after? Is there a direct tie to, if we co-locate behavioral health and primary care, it's going to result in the major ones that they were looking at, preventable ED and preventable inpatient, and then a rise in value-based payment. Nobody really knew it at that time. It was, choose these things that line up with your community needs assessment, and we'll see how it continues to go. And thankfully, there were a lot of good wins with a lot of that. But I think that those are the questions that we'll see. And my hope is that whatever the data side, the metrics that we're actually trying to move like, my hope is that there's a lot more wiggle room. That it's much more descriptive than prescriptive. For the sake of who knows, is this actually going to do what we're thinking? And is this the best thing that we need for our community? No. I'm hoping that they leave the door open and there's some language in the existing documentation that seems to glue to that open door, but hopefully we'll see here in the next couple of months perhaps.